I'm Dave Laird. I'm Matt Booker. And I'm Allerton Dulk, live from a taxi on its way to the Harry Ransom Center in Austin, Texas. And I will ask the driver to step on it. And you're listening to The Great Concavity. Yes, nice Allard, thank you for your great intro. Welcome to episode 33, everybody. We're here with Allard Dendalk, who is a, an academic scholar uh, who studies Wallace and literature and film from the the University of UV Amsterdam, the, is that right? Well, the, the, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm a research fellow with the VU University Amsterdam, and I, I'm a lecturer Vue. in philosophy, literature, and film at Amsterdam University College. Yeah, sorry. All right, nice, nailed it. And like you mentioned, Alan, you are uh, you're currently in Austin, Texas, for a couple months uh, on a Ransom Center fellowship. Yeah. that's got to be that pretty is exciting. pretty sweet. Yeah, no, it is it is very no nice. Kidding. Yeah, and this is the second yeah, right time that I've been lucky enough to record one of these with someone in the same room. Uh, besides yes. the uh, in Austin, I should say we did have one. Dave and I have only recorded once in the same room, and that was this summer in in Illinois. So it's it's great to have yeah. you here in Austin. I'm really lucky that uh, I was able to come down here. You're you're staying very near the university. Uh, I live pretty far away from the university. Austin, I was complaining to you earlier, is really spread out. So it's kind of a pain in pain in the right. butt sometimes for me to even get this far south austin traffic is just terrible uh a lot of people don't realize austin is the 11th largest city in america and i think we have about the third or fourth worst traffic because it was not wow. designed for this many people uh, so thank you for for o- opening up your, your your place and letting us uh, record here today it's very exciting yeah, it's, um, a, it's a pleasure having you here and to, to hear the embodied voice of, of Matt Booker. Instead of the disembodied voice. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yes. Um, the, it's very strange to meet people who do podcasts you've listened to and then see that the voice is attached to a human <laughs> mouth and body and, and all the other things. I don't really even like thinking about it, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> Allard is, is also the author of a book. Dave, you want to give us the title of the book? Yes, it is called Existentialist Engagement in Wallace, Eggers, and Foer. It is out on Bloomsbury Press. Uh, the subtitle is A Philosophical Analysis of Contemporary American Literature. It came out in 2015. So uh, Bloomsbury, being the generous uh, publisher that they are, sent us copies. And so Matt and I have got to spend some time with your book over the last uh, several months on and off as we've been gearing up for this interview. Uh, so thank you for your work there. And uh, Alad, you and I got to meet in Paris a few years ago in 2014 at the gorgeous uh, Sarbonne Wallace conference that had champagne and <laughs> hors d'oeuvres and, you know, only cost five euros. <laughs> and then uh, whenever I, I talk about you, I mentioned that on the very last night when everyone went out for the big formal dinner, uh, you you showed up a little bit fashionably late, I think maybe on purpose, wearing the bandana, the David Foster Wallace conference bandana that we got as like the conference swag. And like everyone just lost their minds laughing. It's just like perfectly, perfectly uh, placed to the to the right audience at yeah, the right yeah. time. I mean, as far as I recall, nobody wore it during any of the panels. And I, 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 no, I, I, no I one, thought this no was way. such a missed opportunity. 
Uh, at, uh-huh. at least somebody should wear it <laughs> uh, yeah. at some sort of conference occasion. Hell yeah. Yeah, I would yeah. have done it. You nailed it. <laughs> uh, so we're going to talk about the book. I definitely want to go through um, just some basics of the book because I found it really uh, fascinating to read the book. And I think more people mm-hmm. should read it and talk about it. So we're going to do some of that. I also, I kind of want to start backwards, though, and start talking a little bit about um, what you're doing in Austin and what your kind of research focus yes. is and what your interest is uh like right now, just kind of where your head is at. Can you give us, I mean, this book originally came out hardcover in 2015. Yeah. And so in the past couple of years, sort of how has it changed your research focus or where are you headed now? Um, yeah, so the, the, the research project that I'm, that I'm currently working on and uh, of which my, my fellowship with the Ransom Center is, is part is this project in which I want to try and investigate the um, let's say the the intertextuality, the intertextual connections between Wallace's work and the the let's say the existentialist literary canon. So mm-hmm. my previous book was really about the connections between Wallace and philosophy, and a lot of it existentialist philosophy. But obviously, there's also mm-hmm. existentialist fiction, and I think everybody who's read something about Wallace knows uh, about his admiration for Kafka, for Dostoevsky. And so the current project yeah. is really to try and see, uh, to try and test some ideas that I have about certain, uh, I think, seminal texts within Wallace's corpus, how they could be read as actually being inspired by uh, uh, certain texts from that uh, existentialist canon. So, for example, Kafka's Metamorphosis, Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground, Camus' The Fall, which you know is is mentioned several times in the focal chapter in The Pale King. Uh, what are the connections of that story to to Wallace's oeuvre, um, and finally also mm-hmm. Sartre's nausea. So, the right. so the next book project, the, uh, the the project I'm currently doing, and which is supposed to result in that book, um, is uh, <laughs> it will be sort of the uh, a succession of these comparative readings, um, and I've been I've been working on that, let's say for roughly the the past year. And what I've also been doing in the meantime, sort of since the since the book came out, is that I've also um, uh, you know tried to work on the connection between the things I found in my readings of Wallace, how they might apply to uh, better understanding certain developments in contemporary cinema. So we all know these terms like new sincerity, um, uh, which you deal with a lot, uh, in this book. which I try to deal with in in yeah. the in the in the existentialist engagement book. Um, and that term is also being used in, in cinema, but quite l- similar to what I found right. in, in, in Wallace studies, in literature studies, is that th- that term remains underdefined, I feel. What do we mean by right. sincerity? And what do we mean by sincerity when we talk about cinema? This seems to be a weird term when you want to talk about cinema. And I've, I've tried to mm-hmm. uh, clarify that a little bit and try to see how some of the uh, the sort of the suggestions within the existing debate can be tied together by coming to some um, more, let's say, philosophically underpinned understanding of that concept. The, when new sincerity is used um, to describe filmmakers, 
I mean, I find it to be all over the place and that some, mm. it seems almost a matter of taste yeah. and that the people, if you like Wallace, you usually like these kind of filmmakers. And, you know, we see mm. some yeah. of those same names come up all the time. Charlie Kaufman, um, Wes Anderson, Spike Wes Jones, Anderson, Wes Anderson, uh, Paul, Noah Paul Baumbach, Thomas Anderson sometimes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And it's just like, well, mm -hmm. to me, that seems like. It, what you're saying is very ill-defined, and same with music too. There's a lot of musicians that are called; uh, they're in the new sincerity movement, yeah, yeah. and mm -hmm. uh, it's it's very. Uh, it makes it seem like a fad. Yeah, almost like yeah. this is something that comes and goes. Yeah. Do you right. think it's more defined in literature or in some other film? I, I think I think the term new sincerity by now is a little bit more defined in literature. I think it's not the go-to term for a lot of people in film studies. Because sincerity is, mm. uh, I think, uh, an even more, an even weirder term for people in, in, in film studies. What does it mean for a film to be sincere? Um, and, and people mm -hmm. feel you know, they're, they're some, somehow put off by it. But I do think that it ties in with a lot of these discussions in literature, in, in, in film, in art in general, sort of this, this desire for realism, uh, for a mm -hmm. new form of realism. Um, I mean, there are all kinds of, uh, you know, footnotes and little, you know, uh, nuances that we uh, should make. But I, I do think that there are interesting connections in, in, in talking about somebody like, for example, Charlie Kaufman, as being somehow driven by uh, the desire to, to portray something, uh, to, to say something meaningful about reality in the form that he chooses mm -hmm. uh, to do so and the way that Wallace chooses to do so. They are very clearly not straightforward realists, but what would it mean <laughs> to be realist in, uh, let's say, our, our, our current uh, artistic cultural uh, uh, time frame? And, and what I've tried to do is, is in, in relation to film, try to build on the work of a couple of film philosophers who've also tried to um, uh, revitalize our understanding of André Bazin's notion mm -hmm. of realism, who's usually interpreted as, as you know, a supporter of very straightforward ontological realism, right? Film is realist because of its automatic photographic uh, aesthetic, uh, uh, aesthetic and, 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 you know, if you use long takes uh, and, uh, uh, you know, you use a lot of wide shots and you can see all the characters and you have depth of field, uh, then you have realism. But I think that's not at the core of what Bazin proposes. He, for him, realism is films that uh, allow for uh, a belief in a meaningful reality. That film somehow offers a meaningful expression of reality and speaks to what it means to be alive. Now, obviously, mm -hmm. I'm I'm using these terms because I'm also you know into Wallace. Right. So there, that might be the <laughs> reason why. Familiar. Yeah, that might be the reason why it sounds very Wallace-like. But I, I think uh, uh, that's not the best explanation here. I think there is there's an affinity between uh, what is happening uh, you know in film studies and in in literature studies in these these films. And indeed, I think it does include. Uh, Anderson and Kaufman, but I think it also uh, uh, includes less usual suspects, like, for example, Lars von Trier, uh, Michael Haneke, uh, Richard Linklater, uh, uh, those mm, kinds yeah. of filmmakers. The, the Dardenne brothers, mm -hmm. I think the Dardenne brothers are an amazing example of, of how their style is, on the one hand, uh, you know, very self-aware and 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 very you know as a as a as a spectator to their films, 
you know you become very aware of the the presence of the camera and and their 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 films are very intense to follow but at the same time they're they're almost documentary like in their intense realism uh, and I think those uh, developments, those sensibilities in contemporary cinema have a, have a, a, a clear kinship uh, uh, with the writing of people like Wallace. So it sounds like your new project has a lot um, in common, maybe even as an extension of your previous work, because there is that uh, focus on existential philosophy, and Camus is in there, and mm -hmm. Sartre is in there. But your definition of sincerity in the book, or the kind of forcing the reader to define sincerity or really push you um, to give a basic definition of sincerity. I found that that whole discussion in your book very interesting because you bring it back to something about stability. Um, can you talk about that? Like what does is, what is stability have to do with sincerity in this context that we're yeah that you um, bring up in the book well I, I think I think the starting point for me was um, you know to somehow engage with a lot of these discussions about how sincerity is supposedly an outmoded virtue and how when people say of uh, you know Wallace or or Eggers or whichever writer um, when the label sincerity is used that that is equated with naivete uh, and with somehow mm -hmm. some sort of naturalness and the assumption that I have some sort of true self which is naturally uh, uh, expressed that that would be sincerity. Um, I, I tried to question um, that that is simply, I think, not the way that we use the word sincerity. I think when we look at virtues of self-becoming, uh, maybe for the past, say, roughly 200 years, a lot of the literature suggests uh, that the dominating virtue in, in uh, uh, Western culture has in fact been authenticity. Mm -hmm. Somehow to be true to some sort of uh, 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 core of what you are or supposed to be, and to somehow mm -hmm. resist corrupting external influences. Yeah, kind of like transcendentalist ideas, like Emerson and Thoreau. Like yeah, uh, the yeah. Sense of 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 your 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 self identity is is the yeah. core. But you could uh, even locus yeah. of truth. But you could right? even see. Mm -hmm. uh, let's just call it broadly the postmodernist project. As, as also mm -hmm. being motivated by that. This postmodernist project of somehow mm -hmm. uh, revealing the self to be an illusion that is merely conditioned and structured by external forces, that, that has as its premise that by somehow becoming aware of that, by becoming aware that the self that has been created through the course of your life, that that is merely a fiction, a, a series of masks, that this insight in itself would somehow be liberating and more authentic mm. than believing that you are the self that you that you, that, you, that you have been uh, 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 becoming throughout those years as the result of you know education, advertising, <laughs> or whatever. So what I try to uh, add to this is say um, the notion of sincerity doesn't necessarily have to bring with it the assumption of some sort of inner self which is honestly communicated to the outside. Um, I think in many ways that is actually more what authenticity uh, uh, brings with it, right? In order to be authentic, I have to be, I have to have something inside me which is somehow protected from outside corruption. And when I'm trying to be sincere with people, uh, I'm simply trying to cohere and, and, and to get back to your question, Matt, to somehow make stable 
my expressions in the word in the world and the actions that come with it that if I attempt to be sincere it is the attempt to somehow uh, uh, create some sort of coherence between my actions between my promises between my ambitions consistency and some some yeah um, that I also look back to uh, who I have been so far uh, and that if I feel that some of those things are you know not so good that I undertake actions uh, in order to change that uh, and that I that I am actively involved in this process of self-shaping so I think the existential call uh, to the individual to form a self to become a self to integrate somehow the different projects in one's life in some sort of coherent self that that uh, that that for me very well qualifies for this label of, of, of sincerity and again not as being some sort of naivete and some sort of honest communication of what I have inside of me but some sort of uh, uh, attempt to to uh, create a, a coherent self that has a certain presence in the world and takes responsibility for you know his or her relations to the world and to other people you know you bring up something in the book too that you know a, a lot of Wallace scholars when they're having this discussion which you do with the AA portions in the book especially with Don Gately and his attempts to become a sort of coherent self through this system of AA but you when talking about sincerity you also bring up um, a bit from Octet uh, which I really love and there's some discussion in there. There's some great lines about defining sincerity is really not even like something even beyond what you would typically imagine. That it's almost defenseless. That it's beyond defenseless. It's like unarmed. Yeah. And and I think mm -hmm. a lot of maybe this goes back to the film as well is that we define it in terms of what it's not. You know, you're unarmed. You're pure of heart in a way that's uh, I don't know that's lacking something that um, you know I'm, I'm I'm really curious maybe we should back up and say how the book is structured a little bit yeah so can I can I just briefly yeah. respond to that I think yeah. I think uh, for me what a what a notion like sincerity uh, communicates is that myself depends on the outside and it depends on other people when you think about already all the associations that you could have with the word authenticity. The word authenticity is about me, about right. me being authentic. When you think about the word sincerity, it is about how I relate to the rest of the world. And I think indeed, mm. with sincerity and with the attempt to be, you know, a self in the, as the existential tradition uh, uh, calls us to be, um, that indeed it includes this element that we also see in, in Octet. This, this acceptance of being right. in some ways unarmed before the other. Mm -hmm. My attempt to be a self in the world is uh, in, in some ways I have to surrender myself to the others uh, in order to form this self and to have this self sort of acknowledged uh, to use a, a Cavellian term. Yeah, sorry. Uh, but, no, uh, no, 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 yeah. but that's, that's to, perfect uh, yeah. because, you know, I, I authenticity is another ball of wax that I've thought about a lot and this is a sort of random example um, but when, when I lived in New York for example there was a big uh, self-reflexivity a big self-feeling of like are you a real New Yorker <laughs> are, are you an authentic <laughs> New Yorker and it's like well what makes you an authentic New Yorker yeah. um, and really it comes down to what you just said which is you get to decide 
you choose. If you choose to act and live, it doesn't matter if you've lived there for a week or 20 years or 50 years or your whole life. It's like if you choose to live in such a way, you're authentic. Yeah. And the same with like fans of certain things. We deal a lot with like fandom, right? Yeah. And it's like, well, am I a real fan or am I someone who just got on the boat today? Yeah. And it's like, in a way, it doesn't matter that you get to decide the way that you define yourself and you choose to act. That is what makes something authentic or not. And there's, you know, more elegant ways of putting this. And that's why when you were talking about um, that kind of hyper reflexivity, that that it's something outside of yourself, that made me back up and think we need to maybe give an outline of the whole yeah, book here yeah, because, okay, yeah. because you start out really talking uh, about that hyper-reflexivity problem uh, and, <laughs> and to me that that sort of sets up a lot of this tension between the self and the world right and that uh, there's tons of good quotes in here that about uh, mm. you know if you want to stop being egotistic and solipsistic then you have to have something outside of yourself to can you say it better than I am? I'm like floundering. Yeah, well, I, I guess and also the reason why the, the connection that you're suggesting is indeed so strong also in the book is because the, the hyper-reflexivity and the sincerity chapters are both in conversation with Sartre. Um, right. and, and I think what Sartre's early existentialist phenomenological philosophy helps us see very clearly, and I, I think it's also really that part of Sartre's philosophy that, that Wallace is so so interested in is that, that that early part of his philosophy is really about trying to define what consciousness is and how consciousness uh, 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 relates to the world outside it and, and relates to others or maybe actually uh, phrased better how consciousness is that relation to the outside world and to others there is nothing beyond consciousness uh, except this relation to the to the to the outside, and uh, Sartre makes this 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 uh, uh, division of of what he calls degrees of consciousness, and he he talks about pre uh, pre reflective consciousness as a being with the world. I'm simply you know I'm walking, and all my attention, uh, all my consciousness, so to say, is directed towards the world. Uh, as soon as I start thinking about what I experience, I get on the reflective level and I thematize, in a sense, my experience. And there, Sartre says, implicitly the I, the ego, uh, uh, arises. And what then happens at the next level, the self-reflective level, is that consciousness thematizes that I, that ego, the consciousness itself, and it becomes sort of wrapped into itself. And there are uh, obviously all kinds of very useful uh, aspects of that, but Sartre also immediately notices how uh, that is, in a sense, consciousness moving away from what is its, its, its object, namely what is beyond consciousness. And if consciousness turns in on itself, it's in, it, in a sense, forgets about that world and it forgets about the, the other people that are, you know, supposedly what it's uh, 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 in contact with. And, and this can turn into what you can, could call hyperreflexivity, what we obviously see a lot in, in, in Wallace's work, where consciousness is only interested in itself, and, and it is completely turned into itself, mm -hmm. and 
it doesn't have the objects that uh, uh, it, it is consciousness of anymore. It simply becomes this turned into itself thing that uh, objectifies itself. And maybe maybe I didn't explain this so so clearly. <laughs> maybe well, people <laughs> maybe people should read the book. <laughs> um, no, um, for 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 Sartre, when I said consciousness is nothing except that relationship to the world, for for Sartre that means that consciousness is not an object. It has no thing-like quality. Um, it is a relation to things. It's a relation to objects. It's a relation to other people. Um, but when consciousness turns into itself, it starts treating it. It starts treating itself as if it is an object. It starts treating itself uh, on the model mm -hmm. of the way that it looks at the world outside. It starts treating itself, uh, and, you know, as, as uh, you know, stones and you know other objects in the world. And you start uh, objectifying your own mental states as somehow objects that are inside yourself, which. Sartre says, mm. is not what consciousness is like. That is not uh, 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 an accurate representation of what, uh, uh, what the contents of the mental yeah, life that's are. That's a problem. Yeah, and it leads to uh -huh. these, you know, to these uh, objectifications of thoughts and all, you know, all the things that can go wrong about that, of which, you know, Wallace is such a uh, fantastic cataloger, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I realize we've got to this far in the conversation without once mentioning Dave Eggers or Jonathan Safran Foer. So uh, <laughs> maybe we should also say not only do you deal with Sartre and Camus and Wittgenstein and Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard. but also with a, a, a few novels, not the entire oeuvre, but a few novels from Dave Eggers and from Jonathan Safran Foer. Do you, yeah. you want to tell us why you picked those um, particular ones yeah well first of all what I what I really wanted to do is is not make this a book about one author uh, I really also right. wanted to engage uh, earlier we talked about a, a certain lack of a, of a definition of sincerity mm -hmm. uh, I think very similarly I, I, I found that the, the, the debate about Wallace's work and, and authors that might be seen as as following his example or, or something like that that it's it was missing some sort of uh, investigation of what it might be that ties their works together then. I mean, I think there's a lot of differences between Wallace on the one hand and Eggers and Four on the other, and also just between the three yeah. of them. But I think there are also good reasons for saying that they also have some affinities. Um, and I wanted to mm -hmm. research that, and, and uh, I wanted to somehow describe how we could look at those novels, at those the works of those novelists, as being related, and my, and my approach to that uh, was to say they have a certain shared philosophical dimension. Uh, some of the, the the concepts that are part of that we've already mentioned: hyperreflexivity, sincerity, but also irony, uh, a certain uh, 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 desire for reality, commitment for community. Um, and I think I chose mm -hmm. Eggers and Four because um, um, I think at that point. When I was I uh, was starting this project, they were they were clearly being marked mm -hmm. in a lot of uh, articles as as the, the clearest examples. I think for a lot of people, they were also the author authors through which people came to Wallace. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, that that was the case for me, right? I read Eggers first. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. Wallace wasn't so well known in the Netherlands. I I read Eggers. I read his first book. And you know, then I heard about this. You know, I was reading Wallace about Eggers. Did he have his? Yeah, yeah, the, the hardcover. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I, so I thought, yeah, yeah. hey, 
Yeah, I, I also read Eggers and Foer before yeah. coming to Wallace as and, well. And, and I think, so. I mean, uh, as I also say in the book, I mean, Wallace is in many ways the, sort of the difficult uh, 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 writer who, who pioneered, I think, some of these uh, philosophical aspects of, of the writing that connects these authors. And maybe Foer and Eggers, you know, they, they clearly they, they are, in a sense, indebted to Wallace. Mm -hmm. Uh, and maybe mm -hmm. their works are not as difficult and not as uh, witness to yeah Complex, they also yeah. you know they don't feel as if they're they've been the result of the same struggle that Wallace clearly had <laughs> in, in, in you know you know giving shape to his fiction finding exactly yeah. what he wanted to say uh, in those works but I still think that there's there's kinships between uh, uh, between these 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 authors. And and that's what I what I wanted to somehow bring together in the book. It's uh, I mean it's interesting mm -hmm. for me because my my perspective on some of that was the result of a lot of publishing hype, and you know like <laughs> living in New York and working in publishing, I'm very attuned to like what is the next big thing. Yeah. And what do a lot of people say is like the next great literature? Right? Yeah. And and uh, at the time, you know, I was very uh, in into Wallace and thought that Infinite Jest had sort of been left out of all the major awards and been snubbed a few years before. Right. And when Eggers' book came out, I was like, this is shit compared to Wallace but I I still read it and enjoyed it but I was like I'm very but, but by well, comparison it's, it's like, just there's no contest if you found yeah. gold everything is compared to that and so for me I I think that that's that's an issue with and we've talked about this with Wallace um, Lister for example it was a spinoff of the Pynchon Lister and a lot of people who are Thomas Pynchon fans or readers uh, they're always looking because they have ten years between a novel, you know they're always looking for what is the who is compared to him. Who's yeah, the who's compared yeah. to him? And you know that's a constant thing that um, not a lot of writers compete with. You know, I don't think a lot of people say you know who is the next. I don't know. I mean Jennifer Egan and people are like I really right. can't wait yeah. for someone to be compared to. Uh, maybe I'm picking on her unfairly, but. Just as an example, I, mean, I think Franzen's in the same boat. I don't think many people think, oh, I really love Franzen. Who else should I read? Yeah. Um, he just doesn't have the same kind of following. <laughs> no one thinks that. No. <laughs> no. And I, I mean, I think um, that sort of there there is a lot of natural tendency to group writers together, you know, and to look at yeah. people born about the same time, um, mm -hmm. you know, that the publications are the most guilty of it. I yeah. think the New Yorker famously had that picture of Wallace with Eugenides and uh, George Saunders, Juno Diaz, and sort of a Zadie, Zadie Smith, Smith Rick Moody, yeah. you know, people kind of born around the same time. So, it's, But it's really rare to see someone dig into the actual work and look at the, the novels themselves yeah. and say, you know, how is Dave Eggers a new sincerity writer? Yeah, yeah. You know, specifically. Yeah. yeah, how thematically and formally could you say that there is affinity between uh, what could be said to be, uh, you know, the philosophical uh, theme and formal aspect of sincerity in Wallace's work and, and, and in Eggers's work? And I, I mean, I'm mm -hmm. quite sure that some people, you know, 
uh, might take a very uh, a different look on, on how these works relate. But I, I think what I try to offer in, in the book is, is, is a coherent way of, of trying to talk about these authors uh, together, also without ignoring the fact that they're also very different. I mean, in, in the introduction, I, I, you know, I tried to uh, uh, introduce it as saying, you know, acknowledging that these novels are different language games. Mm-hmm. But they're language games with ha- uh, that have resemblances, family resemblances uh, uh, between them. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sort of imposing one uh, monolithic interpretive framework on them, but I'm trying to trace <laughs> these, these philosophical uh, connections. And I, I, I think uh, in the end that that you know, is, 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 is a helpful thing to do. And it gives us a better idea of why there, why there might be some good reasons to actually uh, 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 compare these authors Make those and why those authors were were compared in the first place. Besides, obviously, also uh, you know a lot of hype. Uh, you know mm. a lot of you know. Uh, <laughs> okay, it's probably very helpful if we if we pitch Eggers as the new uh, uh, Wallace that's going to sell books. But it, it also worked sure. the other way around. L- like I said, uh, in turn, it, it 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 resulted in a lot of people finding Wallace who had not found Wallace yet. Uh, by reading right. errors, so uh, it works mm-hmm. both ways, and, and uh, I think that is that's pretty valuable and uh, also philosophically interesting to still see. You know, how do they connect? Oh, and it's I mean, mm-hmm. and it's hard for me to to talk about this um, without sin, sounding like a complete sycophant. <laughs> um, but, but it's true, and I, I mean, I and I also don't want to like. Um, equivocate and just say, "Oh, everyone is the same. They're all good." I think you're. I mean, the way that I read your book was that Wallace sort of dominates a lot of the scene of American literature that a lot of yeah. um, people, especially at a certain time, were trying to emulate. And I mean, Saunders had that line after Wallace died about how he was the first among us. Um, but but back right. to your book in the, in the sincerity part, then you go into this part about reality and commitment. And I really liked that part of your book because I like anything that gets what I think to the heart of the matter of why Wallace wrote Infinite Jest. And there is a sort of recipe for living in there. And it's no doubt a lot of... Because there's a criticism of Wallace, too, that's like, oh, well, he kind of paints this dystopian world but doesn't really offer a way out. And I, and I think that right. he does, and it's through AA. Yeah. And a lot of that is set up in your book to talk about community, not specifically about Wallace, but like you've got this part about you know the trap of reality and then... The way out being community. Yeah. Can you can, can you say that better than I did? Because I don't feel like that's a hundred percent. I'll I'll try. Yeah. I'll try. And, and and please steer me in the in the right direction. If you if you no, feel no. I'm uh, I'm I'm going somewhere where you didn't intend us to go. No. I mean the reality commitment chapter is also maybe I should mention that that in the, in a similar way as the the uh, hyperreflexivity chapter and the sincerity chapter are in conversation with each other so are the irony chapter and the reality commitment uh, chapter and both are you know these uh, uh, the novels of these these authors in conversation with Kierkegaard yeah. um, and uh, Kierkegaard has given an irony critique that uh, you know I think uh, is very illuminating in in relation to Wallace's uh, irony critique, and I think the same holds for 
indeed trying to understand um, how Wallace is offering some sort of alternative uh, uh, to uh, you know that irony critique without just saying you know uh, we shouldn't use irony uh, uh, or whatever it, it's it's about the impact on the self uh, if you do not somehow escape uh, sort of an endless uh, 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 type of irony that in the end completely empties out the self. Uh, and mm-hmm. um, this goes back to what we discussed earlier about this trying to somehow uh, uh, become a coherent self. Uh, Kierkegaard uses the terms gift and task for that. He says on the one hand you are, you are gifted this existence and at any point in your life you have a part of that existence be- behind you. And this is what you have been given and that you somehow need to deal with and that you need to take responsibility for, even though it's behind you and there's stuff in it that you, that you can't undo. But that relates to your task, namely that you also have existence uh, ahead of you. And you need to somehow make those two parts cohere and, and take responsibility for, for, what you, uh, for what you do, for what you choose. And this is a vital term in, in, in Kierkegaard and I think also in Wallace this idea that the necessity of choosing, the necessity of commitment and, and realizing that this not choosing that is irony, which is in, in many ways the, the, uh, the avoidance of choice, uh, you know, is, is, is in the end detrimental to, to the self. And I, I think, I, I mean, there's something to say for the fact that in Infinite Jest, you know, there's also a lot of you could say maybe you know uh, hedging about how you know how seriously should we take AA as an alternative I mean there's enough remarks in a novel for maybe skeptical people to say well but actually you know there's also a lot of making fun of AA and people in AA but I think sure that doesn't then uh, notice other elements in the novel where you know the alternatives and sort of these the, the situation of these addicts, this you know the, the situation of people like characters like like Hal and, and the, this this beautiful passage about anhedonia and this rootedness in romantic Weltschmerz, uh, uh, and that you that that uh, choice is necessary and that AA is to be taken seriously um, as uh, a a possible route to this and I think why sort of the making fun of AA is in the novel is to tempt the reader to see this as a way out to say ah yeah no AA is also you know that's not that's not serious how can you take this serious right where we live in an ironic age this can't be a serious alternative and therefore I think what is important about Wallace's fiction and what I'm also realizing in this new research project is that so many sort of I think the real uh, uh, substance to Wallace's what you could call ethical project is actually supposed to be realized in the reader, in the reader while reading. So we can think that you know Mario might not be a convincing character, or that Gately, uh, you know, in the end uh, 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 might not might also be a too simple portrayal uh, of sincerity or virtue. I, I personally don't think so, but you know. Uh, I'm aware that some people might think so. Fred Easton Ellis, I'm sure. Does. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Easton Ellis. Yeah, yeah <laughs> undoubtedly. Yeah, so, but I, I think um, in the end, um, what is important is, is what these things cause in the reader and the kinds of um, 
let's say, philosophizing the types of, 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 of realizing, okay, what is this novel trying to tell me? How is it trying to let me look at reality? Which kind of questions is it asking me uh, uh, you know, to pose in relation to that reality? And that that is where these, these notions of sincerity and attention, other directed attention, uh, uh, right, where they are probably most properly uh, realized. Um, yeah, uh, sorry, I went off on a little no, bit of no, one of those uh, digressions that I feared. No, that, that's, yeah. that's actually right on um, <laughs> track with what I was asking. And, you know, I, I think that that AA discussion is something that uh, definitely reads differently to me after Wallace's suicide. And that, yeah. yes, I do think he took it seriously and it mattered a lot to him. And to him to write about it, he could sort of only do it that way. Um, but that was, I mean, by his own admission, like the thing that saved his life. And he's not someone who grew up with this idea of a higher power, not someone who, you know, you would think, uh, you know, went to Harvard for philosophy. You know, he was in the midst of, he was not your typical AA candidate. Um, mm -hmm. But as, and I don't think that there's something didactic about this so much of him trying to say everyone should do this. It's more like here's one report from the beyond. Um, but I, the fact that you, I don't know, engage so much with that storyline and take it seriously as a, a sort of philosophical construct, to me, that's part of the reason why people come back to the book is that that feels so real and authentic and uh, yes it does work in the yeah. book but also yeah. as it relates to something beyond you know yeah. it's not just like oh you wrote a novel about you know 9-11 or you wrote a novel about traveling around the world it's like no you wrote something that I don't know changed your life yeah and, and I think no reader of Infinite mm -hmm. Jest can deny that those AA sections are you know some of they the best, they are yeah. some of the best in the book yeah and you, you can't say that and on the other hand say but they, oh but they're not serious somehow no I and I, I I you know that's an interesting criticism because I think um, it it might have a little bit to do with the way that you deal with boredom in the book and that the you know you <laughs> say like it's not so much that it's it's not serious it's like oh it's boring and just like the people in AA when they're first introduced to these kind of banal cliches it's like that's boring or that's you know we, could you talk about that the, the way that you see the the boredom issue working a lot of people think only he deals with that in the Pale King but there's a lot in an in infinite jest yeah. Would, yeah. would you say that yeah how, how does boredom fit in there um, well I mean, can I tie it to Kierkegaard? Please do, um, please do. Yeah, um, I mean, that might m make the most sense, or at least <laughs> the yeah, easiest for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, for, 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 for Kierkegaard, uh, uh, boredom is the, 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 the thing that the ironist fears most. Uh, when uh, irony, in a sense, serves the ironist to distract from all kinds of things that might ask for that person's commitment or sustained attention mm. um, and a lot of things uh, when given sustained attention you know uh, might indeed you know l lose their initial allure or uh, whatever and um, 
what Kiergaard is, I mean, he, he wrote beautifully about, uh, about boredom, that it is, in a sense, the, 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 the ethical task to, to take this upon you to accept boredom and to see boredom as your continuing confrontation with what you choose. That if you're serious about something, if um, you want to give your life direction, if you're going to want to give coherence to yourself, you have to be be involved in a sustained way with those choices, uh, and you have to accept the you know the, the duration that comes with it. If you're going to be a in a relationship, that you know that will sometimes make you feel. You know the passing of time. There will be moments where it's not exciting and you know jazzy and great and whatever. Um, it's there are going to be moments of, of of boredom. And and Kierkegaard tries to say that, but it's exactly these moments of boredom that you have to work through and that confront you with the importance of your choice. Uh, and I, I think what what Wallace shows, especially I think in Infinite Jest. He shows the huge difficulty that a lot of people have with enduring boredom. It's the, the, the main response of all these addicts in, in AA, as you said, right? This is, this is boring, this is simplistic. You know, how, how am I supposed to listen all the, to all these people? You know, just, just talk about, you know, how their lives went to shit. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I'm not like them. You know, my life is different and I just have to hear to these, I have to listen to these whiny, uh, uh, people I don't even believe in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and then at the end we're all, you know, supposed to, you know, pray to a higher power uh, and that's magically going to cure me. And how does that do justice to my great intelligence, right? That, that, that's also that idea that, that, you know, these things are boring because they're somehow simple and I am not simple. I'm sophisticated. I'm an intelligent, hyper-reflexive human being who is Conscious, uh, constantly aware of the flip sides of everything, and now you're giving me this thing that you're telling me has no flip side, is just what it is, and I should just take it for what it is. <laughs> uh, I think uh, the response of, of those addicts in Infinite Jest is it's, it's this automatic response, right, that they have to ironize it in order to get away from that, uh, the boredom of it, the, the simplicity of it. And for Kierkegaard, that's very much what he calls an aesthetic response. The, the response to, you know, let everything in life somehow be exciting, be somehow in conformity with some sort of ideal that that person has about living. Uh, and that ideal tends to be uh, about pleasure. Mm -hmm. uh, and that can be very refined intellectual pleasure. It can be maybe more base carnal pleasure, mm -hmm. but it, in whatever way, uh, it's in pursuit of this thing of what these people think that supposedly uh, life should be about. And, and, and Kiergaard says this is an aesthetic desire and in boredom lies actually the ethical call to become a self, to not constantly chase these, uh, uh, you know, these little nuggets of pleasure that you might gather here and there, but to somehow give shape to your life and accept the, the boredom that somehow belongs to it that you have to accept in, 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 in order to somehow make yourself uh, coherent. I'm not sure, did I explain that in any way that, that, yeah, that makes no, sense? Yeah, and, no, and that's where we rely on you to make these connections to Kierkegaard. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm certainly not well read in, in 
near as much of the literature as you are. And that's that's why I want to ask you about one. Before I forget, I did have another question for you about the chapter on Wallace and Wittgenstein and how you think that Wallace was in conversation with Wittgenstein and, and in what way? Ooh, that's a big question. That's a big question. Um, <laughs> uh, where to start? Um, well, I, I mean, in many ways, there are so many declarations in his writing that he, you know, that he was a fan of Wittgenstein, that he was convinced by mm. what Wittgenstein wrote. All right, let that, me be a little yeah. more specific. Okay. Let's say, yeah. let's say that um, you know, broom of the system. Let's not talk about because that, to me, is uh, not his greatest work, and it's very overtly about Wittgenstein. Yes. Um, yeah. Let's say sure. between Wittgenstein's two major works, Tractatus and Philosophical Investigations, how do you see Wallace engaging with that after Broom of the System? Um, or even if you want to bring up some of Wittgenstein's minor works, that would yeah. be great too. Well, I, I mean, I, I think it's, 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 there's an interesting similarity in, in the sense that, that um, Wallace comes from this pretty hardcore sort of logic, analytical philosophy. Yeah, analytical philosophy background, right. which I think has many of its roots in in early Wittgenstein. So the Tractatus Wittgenstein, um, and I, I think what what you see in, in in Wallace's work is 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 a way to somehow. Uh, well, maybe that sounds as if he's mapping it on Wittgenstein. That's not what I he's mean. He's moving in a but, similar direction. But yeah, though, I mean. that he's trying to find a way to write fiction that that somehow enables the readers to interrogate reality, and that doesn't somehow declare this is the philosophical system with which to understand the whole world, which is what Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein in a sense, does in the Tractatus. Uh, and he says, uh, you know, the, 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 the purpose of language is to describe the world out there and every word that doesn't mirror the state of affairs in the world uh, or every proposition that doesn't do so, uh, you know, that uh, lacks sense and, you know, uh, we, we should not speak of that. And that, of course, he means uh, not literally, he says, well, that actually, you know, encompasses all the most important things in, in right. life, ethics and religion Love. and whatever. <laughs> Love. Um, <laughs> but then he, he, he has this development towards the, the philosophical investigations where he, he, he says, well, but this was a very specific way of looking at language. This is only a very small part of the possible functions of language. Uh, and he starts treating language as based on, you know, how does it function in certain contexts? And I, I think what for me is very important about the later Wittgenstein is the way that uh, that that later work, or the, the way that we read the investigations. When you read it, it's, it's not a book that you can paraphrase. It's not a book that you can say, well, this is, this is what it's about, and this is its structure. It's very much a book that you have to read, that you have to experience, and you have to be in the conversation with Wittgenstein. He's constantly asking these questions and bringing up these situations. And I, I think this, this, you know, well, Wallace made very clear that, that the, the, the view of language expressed there uh, appeal to him that was an eye-opener after the, the views of language that he'd, he'd, he'd been exposed to before. Um, and I think that the, the, the way his fiction works is very similar. Like I tried to say a couple of minutes ago about uh, where I think the, 
the virtues that Wallace's fiction might be seen to describe or advocate that they are actually most prominently realized in the reader. It's because of, I think, this, this almost Wittgensteinian process of reading Wallace, that you, you're, you're in conversation with the text. The text is not, you know, I think almost everything that Wallace wrote, you know, there's not this clear one thing that you need to get from it. The stories are not, you know, this is the narrative content that you need to take in. Um, they're, they're supposed to somehow trigger you to ask questions about the characters, about the world they live in, how they relate to your world, and that's the exact th same thing that, that Wittgenstein does. And I think in, in, in terms of how he views language, um, what is important for Wallace is that he sidesteps, or, well, sidesteps, that sounds maybe a little bit uh, cowardly, <laughs> and that is exactly not what he does, but he declares, uh, I, I think, what you could call the traditional picture of language, and by extension, although, you know, this is after Wittgenstein officially, but also, you know, certain postmodern critiques of the traditional view, he, in a sense, declares them as irrelevant. He says all these, you know, discussions about how words somehow get their meaning from either, you know, these, these concepts that are, you know, in some sort of platonic eternal heaven <laughs> um, mm -hmm. or you know there are these eternal timeless truths that give meaning to our word words or well if we if we're less less platonically or less religiously inspired we might say well but my words are given meaning because of the thoughts in my head while I speak them or my words are given meaning because I say bottle and I point to a bottle in the world and the, the, the bottle in the world gives meaning to my words about that bottle um, and what Wittgenstein says is that is actually, that sounds like, you know, a very convincing picture. We might think that that is how language works, but that is not in fact how language works. My words do not get their meaning from my thoughts or from the objects in the world that they're supposedly referring to, but from our practices Actions, in, in, yeah. In, yeah, in, in, in using uh, uh, language. And it's these, these uses and these contexts that provide uh, 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 these these words with their meaning, and the interesting thing is that this thereby, and I think this allows Wallace to overcome that sort of postmodernist Derridean problem, where there's this constant questioning of the connection between words and reality, uh, and I think a, a lot of his let's say rewriting and and his sort of uh, what you could call maybe his critique of John Barth. Is, is modeled on this problem. A lot of metafiction is about pointing out the illusory character of fiction, right? The words in the fiction don't point to any, you know, actual realities. Mm. It's, it's all, you know, structure. It's all fake. It's all fiction. And the invitation in, 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 in postmodernist philosophy and postmodernist literature is that we somehow see how this extends to our normal use of language, right? That everything is a linguistic construct and that that words somehow always fail to make that connection to the world that our attempts to describe the world are always uh, just that attempts to describe the world they, they never actually succeed in doing so and that's why you find in Derrida a lot of things like you know uh, words fail to mean and this in many ways you know uh, that creates a huge problem because you know if we're always failing to describe the world in some meaningful way, you know, why are we doing this? What are we supposed to do? And, and Wittgenstein, in a sense, says words are not failing to do anything. They're not even attempting 
to make that connection to the bottle in the world. That's not how it functions. It functions. The, the, the reason why the word bottle has meaning is because you know, we have this language community in which we know what we mean when we refer to bottle. And there's 99 of language use situations where there's no unclarity about what I mean when I say to you, can you get me a, a bottle of something from the fridge? Um, and Wittgenstein says that that is the basis of how language functions. And obviously there are situations in which language is more complicated and more ambiguous, and one of the places where that is the case is in literature. And Wittgenstein says that is one of the reasons why literature is so interesting and so important, because reading literature explicitly brings with it the question of how are we supposed to think these words? Uh, and is the novel somehow involved in you know, investigating how we mean, how our words mean, how we understand the world, and I think that, for Wallace, was was in a very important aspect of Wittgenstein's philosophy, and seeing it connected to his philosophical, his his, his literary philosophical project, I would say. Sorry, that was another no, long digression. Fantastic. No, that's that's great, <laughs> and it, I mean it leads to more questions for me. Da Dave, did you did you have more qu more questions for for Allard? Of course, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean. So we've covered like s several of the main philosophers that you talk about in your book. Uh, maybe to step back a little bit and talk about your process in this book, one thing that comes up several times is that you got to interview uh, all three of the authors, Eggers, Foer, and Wallace. And I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of sort of background and insight as to like how those interviews developed, um, what your impressions of these three writers were like as people, maybe on a personal level, how they informed your argument yeah. in this book in ways maybe that, that wouldn't have occurred before? No, I, I mean, I, I think it definitely was very helpful. I mean, this was very much in the, in the formative stage of the, of the project. So it was really at the start of, of, my, of my PhD. Uh, and and mm -hmm. in the end, this, this book that got published, that's, that's, that came out of the, the, the dissertation that I, that I, that I wrote. Um, I mean, uh, I, well, to describe the process, I, I sent letters uh, I, I sent all three of them uh, uh, letters. I had Wallace's address at his university. I, uh, uh, I sent a letter to Eggers uh, at McSweeney's. Uh, and I knew some people mm -hmm. at Foer's Dutch publishing house. Uh, and and Foer <laughs> has sort of a special uh, connection with his Dutch publishing house because actually his, well, they're now divorced, but Nicole Krauss and Jonathan Sanford, right. they Krauss. met, I think, in Amsterdam. Or at least they were both oh, there yeah. on invitation of the Dutch publisher, mm. uh, and that mm. is, you know, why I, I think the publisher had sort of a, a, a good connection with them, and, and you know, and they gave mm. gave me his his well, they gave me an address, which I then later found out oh, was yeah. simply his personal home. <laughs> uh, so the short answer is you stalked the you stalked uh, yeah, yeah 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 <laughs> through some indirect yeah, channels more or less yeah <laughs> I, I, I think I, I was somehow reluctant to use that word no 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 no, no. please commit a crime no 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 yeah. so please commit so, a crime I mean, that, that's interesting is oh that goodness gracious no no not a lot of um, writers, golly especially our scholars writing now have that sort of background where they especially with Wallace that they corresponded with him. Um, you know what? What was that like? Did he take like six months to respond and then apologize for it and <laughs> and, and not really answer your questions? Yeah. Well, no, not at all. The, the, the first thing, I mean, I am one of the the lucky recipients of a Wallace postcard. Nice. Um, oh, so nice. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I wrote 
him this letter briefly explaining the project um, and I, I think relatively quickly I think within a month wow. uh, I got a post postcard saying uh, this sounds interesting but I'm realizing more and more how little I know about oh, wow. my own writing uh, not <laughs> sure if I can be you know of help but feel free uh, to write more I'd love to hear more about your project so I, I wrote a more extensive description of the project and I got a letter back uh, which you know was incredibly generous uh, in the attention that it paid to my to my mm. project and he was especially interested in you know the, the things I wanted to do with Kierkegaard and Wittgenstein and he responded specifically uh, to those uh, uh, parts and and I think based on that also you know that that triggered his interest um, and and he said you know uh, w this might be more efficient if we do this via email um, and mm -hmm. then we emailed back and forth a bit but that was also the point where he said you know uh, just list the questions that you have for me because I tried to convince him to let me interview him in person but I got I got the response <laughs> that almost everybody got saying, you know, uh, I will start pr uh, sweating profusely. Uh, yeah, profusely <laughs> and, uh, you know, I get uncomfortable and, you know, I'm worried that you might, you know, take my words out of context. And when I write them down, I have control uh, 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 right. uh, over yeah. what's there. And so, I mean, that forced me into that situation where you have to list your questions. And I tried to resist the temptation to be funny uh, about it and you know, to, 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 to hedge and whatever. I just said, okay, this is, you know, this is, these are the questions Straight I have in mind. Forward, I, can, yeah. I can give you all kinds of running commentary, but this is what I would like to talk about if we were to meet in person. You know, you're free to interpret the questions as you want, but it did mean that I, you know, I asked these really broad, overly straightforward questions, which he then, of course, uh, his answers were mostly unpacking the question and, and, and sort of and, right. and picking it apart <laughs> yeah. and saying things like, well, with this question, you might mean this, but that means that you're setting me up to say <laughs> that and that um, and, and doing those kinds of things, which I, I mean, uh, was also incredibly valuable be because in some ways I was asking him impossible things. Mm -hmm. Um, right. And I think if, you know, what I learned from that was also very much, okay, you're interviewing somebody, what are your expectations? What is this person going to be able uh, 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 to tell you? And I think if, you know, if I'd gotten another chance interviewing him, I would have definitely done it mm -hmm. differently. <laughs> um, but it, it still was very interesting and it was very interesting to see his mind work in those responses. They were very elaborate. They, you know, they remained very friendly but at the same time also very you know he was clearly very um you know very conscious about Rigor rigorous. Yeah, rigorous but also yeah. very conscious of okay you're researching my fiction you're asking me these questions and you'll make connections between what i will say now and what you read in my fiction so he was constantly giving me disclaimers um <laughs> about how you know uh, what he was saying actually had any relevance for his writing process and for how he thinks about his own writing. Please tell me you printed all this out. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, yeah, it's, it's... We'll put it's, it in the yeah, show notes. No, it's, uh, <laughs> archived it somewhere. Yeah, right? no, it's, it's backed Safe. up both physically and digitally. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah there, okay. There, was, there was this one annoying thing, however. Somehow our... And I don't know. I mean, I don't know mm. a lot about email programs and whatever. But there was some sort of... Uh, I think you know something that didn't really connect between our the ways that we sent our emails, and both our sentences kept cutting off. 
sort of were sometimes parts of sentences oh, were were, hmm. were missing. Trimmed. Um, so that was that was a bit weird and and yeah. Redacted. No, well, not redacted Just because that cut off. Yeah, cut off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ablated was the word. Mm-hmm. Tree of codes. <laughs> Yeah, no, he, he um, and, and that annoyed him and that annoyed me. Hmm. Uh, it also gave the, the, sure. the conversation something mysterious because there might be this, these little <laughs> insights truths and missing, these, truths, yeah. these <laughs> insights that were missing from the conversation. Um, but yeah, that was, oh. that was a conversation with, with Wallace and, you know, I, uh, yeah, I, I yeah. learned a lot from it. I was very grateful that he was willing to respond at all. And, you know, the same holds hmm. for the other two uh, guys. I mean, yeah. I, I went to San Francisco to interview Eggers and you know, oh, yeah, person. and cool. I took this picture in the introduction. The, yeah, that the, the yeah, sidewalk. The, oh yeah, the sidewalk. San Francisco, <laughs> very close to the McSweeney's yeah. office, and um, right, yeah, yeah. I actually I arrived at one. That was what we what we'd agreed, and he he saw me coming in. and He said, "Hey, you're the Dutch guy. Uh, <laughs> weren't we supposed to meet at three? And I said, "No, at one, but I can leave." <laughs> he said, "No, no, no. I have a bit of time now, but I have another meeting at two, and that might be too short." And uh, well, uh, long story short, I ended up staying almost the whole day there, and also, you know, sitting in on a couple of conversations that he had with other people. And most of our, you know, our one-on-one conversations took place in the basement, uh, where they also had sort of all the stock of the McSweeney's. The, the pirate uh, no, store. No, the pirate store. Was, or below, below yeah, the, no, pirate the pirate store, store was the across books. the street. The but it was, you know, yeah, shelves mm, full of yeah, books. Yeah. And he he just said, you know, help yourself. Take something. Yeah, take something. But also, you know, oh, uh, nice. it, it will take me some time to finish up this next meeting. <laughs> you know, go read. I'll be right back. And I think in the end, I, I talked to him for you know, uh, over these different sessions, uh, more than three hours. And wow. he was incredibly generous mm. with his with his time cool. and really nice guy to interview. And four, well, I mean, the funny thing was four was the first to respond uh, uh, via email. And he said, sure, let's set this up. But then, you know, he didn't respond to uh, proposals for specific dates. It turned out later that he was actually in Italy uh, with his wife and that he wasn't there for, uh, you know, most of the period that I was actually in New York. So when I was approaching, you know, uh, my departure date, I thought, okay, I have this address. Go. I, I will just go there and it will probably be his agent's <laughs> office or whatever and I can say hey I have you know I have four more days in New York can I please meet with with four and you know it was somewhere in Brooklyn and you know I walked down this street and I thought this looks pretty residential mm-hmm. and I, I knocked on his door and uh, you know uh, for a long time it was silent in the house and then I suddenly you know I saw somebody coming from the stair down from the stairs uh, in you know a box of shorts and his socks, and, and it was four, and uh, and they 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 That's arrived sweet. from Italy the, the night before, uh, oh so I guess uh, I Just guess he was super jet lagged. Jet lagged, and he said he said no, wow. sure we have to make this happen. Uh, you know, are you okay with Monday, which was two days, two or three days later? And, and I said that's the day before I leave, so that's great. And and we had lunch at this cafe, sort of uh, at the the corner of the street, and and you know I think I also talked for one and a half, two hours uh, to him. So they were all incredibly generous with their with their cool. time. Wow! And it was incredibly helpful for my Amazing. project. Um, you know, also to to realize the limits of you know what you can expect an author to say about their own work. Uh, I think that was yeah. that was something that I needed to learn at that point, and they still, you know, gave me a lot of helpful information also to develop the project. 
to, to know, okay, this is the direction that I should be taking it uh, in. So in, in many ways, the, the project was very strongly influenced by, uh, uh, by those interviews. Hmm. Very cool. Um, I wanted to ask this like 45 minutes ago when it when it was relevant. <laughs> um, this, is, this is a more philosophical question, but um, we've talked. So, so three keywords have been New York, uh, Charlie Kaufman, and hyperreflexivity earlier in the conversation, <laughs> and I wanted to uh, to tie those three together and maybe talk about Synecdoche, New York, a little bit by Charlie Kaufman and how how you might see um, correlations to some of the work and themes in Wallace. Because um, one of the things that we said we'd talk about is we'd, we'd spend some time talking about film um, specifically. So uh, I wrote a paper on Synecdoche, New York back in well, years and years ago. Um, but I just, uh, like when you were talking about the ideas of Jean-Paul Sartre and, uh, and, and selfhood and identity, uh, that movie does some really interesting things with uh, those concepts. And I wonder if you, want, if you would be able to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's actually some time ago that I saw that film so it, it, mm -hmm. I find it a bit hard to to come up with something eloquent to say uh, about that film besides, <laughs> okay. besides that, that I completely agree with you and that you know it's it's for me obvious that that film engages with exactly you know those philosophical themes that, that we yeah that we, totally uh, very depressing yeah that also it's yeah. very depressing yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I didn't love it the first time I saw that film just because I thought it was so bleak yeah and and just yeah. sad and yeah. I was like and it was long and I was like yeah. I don't know if I want yeah it's almost three hours I don't know if I want to live about. in this world much longer <laughs> which which version though, Matt? There's like a hundred versions of this world. Ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, if I, I mean, well, it's too yeah, recursive. One response to to your question would be, we should do a, a podcast part two and just talk about film. Yeah. Um, if I can just take right, the yeah. liberty uh, of not really responding to your question and and tying it in with with, with Annalisa, which is uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Kaufman's His uh, newest film, more recent film. I mean, I think that that film is, is, is so interesting in, in how it deals with those, those themes of realism that we talked about at the start of the conversation, right? When we, we mm -hmm. tried, when we talked about trying to make this connection between Wallace's literary project and what might be going on in, 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 in contemporary film. I think what for me is so, so interesting about Anna Melissa is how it's uh, I think is a, is a great example of how some of these films, some of these contemporary films, combine awareness and immersion, I would say, right? That on the one hand, it is a film that is incredibly self-conscious and forces the mm -hmm. viewer to be very self-conscious in relation to the film, to be constantly aware of the fact that you're watching puppets, uh, uh, that yeah. you're watching this, this, you know, this, this fake constructed world. Also, by making you know the seams between those faceplates visible, but at the same time, that it's such an incredibly human film, uh, and mm -hmm. that there, there's this interesting dynamic between constantly being aware of looking at puppets, but at the same time feeling that these are the most human characters that you might have seen in film for a very long time and also to have a very human response to them. I mean, one of the things that that's, you know, uh, stood out to me is how uncomfortable the love scene made me and a lot of mm. other people 
in the theater. And I, I know yep. Yep. Zadie Smith wrote a great <laughs> essay about about uh, about that film and also about her. Oh, yeah, about her. And it's sort of it's it's an essay about a couple of sort of digital animation films. It also includes the, the Polar Express film. But she talks about her experience sitting in the theater and watching that that scene with the rest of the you know the spectators, seeing you know this this pretty explicit oral sex scene, oral sex between puppets, uh, and mm-hmm. you know that there was this sort of nervous giggling uh, uh, of people in the audience. <laughs> and and what I what strikes me about that is in many ways that that is a, a, a response that we've somehow been conditioned not to have anymore when we see. Uh, uh, love making in live action movies, right? We've been conditioned to think, well, this is normal. I'm here in this, you know, dimly lit uh, bedroom with these two characters taking each other's clothes off, and I'm just sort of this spectator, and I and I'm completely comfortable with my spectatorial position. And Anna Melissa actually brings back a certain, uh, you know, uncomfortableness with my spectatorial position. Why am I watching this? Why am I witness to the intimacy between these two uh, uh, two characters? Especially because this infasi- intimacy uh, seems to be something that that both these characters crave incredibly. That one of the characters has, you know, apparently missed out on for a very long time already. He doesn't even see other people as 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 you know full individuals. And now finally he encounters somebody, and they you know they they have this click and whatever. And that to me, that you watch that scene, and on the one hand you're thinking I'm watching puppet sex, and on the other hand you think you know this is it's like Team America. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, it's 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 sort of really realistic and endearing lovemaking, um, and I think that that is it's just an example of of how that film uh, uh, works for me, and how I I sort of think that that combination of awareness and immersion, how the fact that you're not being pushed out of the film by this incredible self-consciousness, but that that actually that self-consciousness is being used to pull you into the narrative, that that is something pretty remarkable about that film. And that I think connects it to some some other contemporary films and some some other Kaufman films, but also connects it to, you know, uh, the Wallace Literary Project. I mean, for me, the, the interesting sort of partner example would be a film like Boyhood, which you would think is right. uh, more or less the opposite, right? It, it seems like a, a naturalist film. It's filmed in this very naturalist style. Yeah. You have actors aging instead of somehow being mm. make-uped mm. to look like they're a couple of uh, yes. uh, years <laughs> older. So in that sense, it, it has this naturalist feel to it. But at the same time, this is so weird for us to see actors actually age on screen it inevitably gets you thinking about the film as film Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. but then you also start realizing how you know you're given these slice of life events and you're with these characters for almost you know two and a half three hours and there's this combination of being very aware of the film as an artistic venture and all the you know the logistics that it yeah. brought with it but at the same time that you're totally. being shown this very real and, and and human portrayal of this boy growing up and for me in that sense Anamalisa and Boyhood are, are almost sort of these congenial uh, cinematic experiments one with puppets and seemingly artificial and you know one shot over 12 years and seemingly naturalist but both Mm-hmm. Uh, creating this effect of, of simultaneous awareness and immersion. 
And the reason why I, I'm interested in that is that a lot of these discussions about you know what is called post postmodernism or metamodernism or you know mm -hmm. all these these terms in relation to cinema is that it's always there's always talk about tension between irony and sincerity tension between self-consciousness and immersion uh, oscillation unsuccessful negotiation those kinds of terms and when i watch these films I, f I i don't feel that it's unsuccessful i don't feel there's a tension i feel there's a there's a productive productive conjunction of them and i feel that they work together to create this effect i feel that the the awareness and the immersion make this uh, a, a cinematic experience that i don't have with films from 50 years ago and that maybe makes them so essentially different from what we would call maybe you know classic realist movies from you know, let's say the 50s uh, and mm -hmm. that there's a that there's a new type of realism or a new type of sincerity to mm -hmm. these films that has interesting affinities with with uh, with uh, Wallace's writing. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Cool. Um, I, I think uh, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I want to. Me too. Um, <laughs> I think that too. <laughs> I, I, I have a lot. I guess I have a lot of more questions for you, and I could go on. Um, yeah. But I yeah. want to. Um, Mainly, thank you for being on the episode, and thank you for writing this book. I want everyone to go out and buy it. I'm holding it up. You can't see it on the <laughs> audio version. But We're actually using a video phone for, up, for uh, once. We almost never do. Existential <laughs> Engagement in Wallace. I really think it's one of the best uh, books in Wallace studies that I've read. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I great. underlined a lot more questions that I have for you. And uh, especially <laughs> yep, your... your stuff about film and media is, is really relevant. And we didn't even talk about the fact of the, the filmmaker is one of the main characters of Infinite Jest. No, yeah. um, mm -hmm. So is there anything else that we, we didn't mention? Any final thoughts you have that you want to say before we sign off? Well, no. First of all, it's, it's great to hear that you, know, that, you, that you appreciate the book. I mean, the, I've spent a lot of time writing this and now to, you know, to have it actually <laughs> being read in the world by real people, that, that's... That's fantastic. So you know that that's you know thank you for that compliment. Um, well, you know I could also go on for a, for a very long time, and and I, and I shouldn't. I think one of the one of the things that I'm super excited about is is you know the new project that I'm that I'm working on, and all the things mm -hmm. that I'm finding in, in in the archive. And I think to 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 get yeah to make a sort of a, a small connection to what we discussed earlier. I mean I mentioned uh, uh, my my sort of my feeling that the, the most important effect of Wallace's fiction uh, is, is in the reader. Um, I'm, I'm working on this, 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 this comparative reading of Camus' The Fall uh, and uh, Wallace's Good Old Neon. Mm. Um, and I think one of the mm. dilemmas when cool. reading these texts is, you know, how to deal, well, in Good Old Neon, for example, with Neil's struggle with, uh, you know, the fraudulence trap, so to say. Um, and it's it's so interesting to see how Camus uh, 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 lets his uh, uh, main character in, in the fall, Clemence, sort of set up the same type of uh, 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 structure, um, where we work towards the end of the story, and at the end of the story it's revealed that the narrator is actually in some sort of way manipulating the character or the interlocutor or the addressee, whatever you want to call it. And we have, of course, that turn mm -hmm. 
at the end of, of, of Good Old Neon. And I think what's so great about the comparison between these stories is that, you know, it, it, it tells us something about, you know, how we read. Um, and I think when we read both those texts, we, we, we are obsessed with somehow finding out, okay, what, what is wrong? What is exactly, you know, what's, uh, how can this character somehow be so, you know, in this problem? And he has to be so extreme that he can't find his way out. And Robert Solomon has a beautiful text about, about Camus' The Fall, uh, saying that that is somehow the readerly strategy that we should resist, that we should, in a sense, say, there is nothing wrong mm -hmm. with Neil. And the, 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 that's not what Solomon says, because Solomon talks about Clemence mm -hmm. in Camus' book. But I think you can extend it, this very helpfully, um, that, that there is nothing wrong. Uh, and that we should not be focused on somehow finding, okay, what is what is the core problem here? What is the, the explanation for why this character is this way? But accept that it's, in a way, his confrontation with absurdity. Mm -hmm. And that the problem with Camusian absurdity is that when you realize the contingency of all truth, is that after that, it's not just that there are no truths anymore, but all truths feel like they're fraudulent. and you feel like you're uh, a, a fraud. And Solomon says we should therefore resist sort of falling into that trap and somehow agreeing with Neil that he is a fraud and realizing how we are in a sense subject to the same uh, 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 dynamic. And in a sense, reading against Neil's ongoing self-accusation and at that final twist in the story also David Wallace's uh, ongoing self-accusation mm. and somehow trying to break that spiral of hyper-reflexivity, which again is such an important topic in, in both those texts. Mm. And that is why also the ending of the story, not another word, in a sense of this, this, this ongoing you know, self-accusation and maybe also as readers, this ongoing desire to find, okay, what's the, what, what, is, what explains this guy's problem? but that we somehow accept that this whole fraudulence is an ex a result of the absurdity with which uh, the individual is, is inevitably uh, uh, confronted. And that, therefore, this, this, this mode of attention has to be realized by the reader and that we, therefore, somehow have to um, give the characters in that story uh, the attention in which somehow the ethical call of that story is realized. Sorry, this was a very oh, digressive, long-winded, <laughs> and non-purposeful final, final thought. thought. I hope the better version of this will will end up in, in, in the book that is to come from all this, and in the sort of upcoming two, three years at conferences, I hope. Um, sure. yeah, 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 good. But we're going to edit it down. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that, that's probably the right thing 20 to do. 25 yeah, minutes yeah. tops. Yeah. That's yeah. good. Oh. Yeah. So, so Ali, do you have you have another month in the archive? Yes. Is that right? Yeah. About yeah. right? Yeah. So you're getting some serious, serious research yeah. time in there. Yeah. No. I'm I'm very excited to see what comes out yeah. of all that. Yeah. So am uh, I. In your in your future work. <laughs> you're gonna have a long time to sort through all your photographs when you're done. You yeah. Know, yeah. Take a while. Like, no, yeah. definitely. Yeah. No. I mean, right now, just going through different infinite jest drafts. There's so much to uh, to take in and to indeed to catalog for yourself, right? To to to, to capture and to catalog. And yeah, this this will you know this is material for years of yeah, research. It is true. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's true. Do you guys ever foresee a time where they might publish the unpublished scenes of Infinite Jest? No. Does that seem like, from a publishing standpoint, like that's something that like people would buy or be interested in no. at all? No. No. They're also, I mean, th- just like too too small an audience. No, to make it I, worth. I, maybe. I also don't think that, the, that yeah. there's much. Um, you know, the, there's much demand outside of us. Like, there's a small group of like <laughs> Wallace people outside of like the one thousand yeah. people who. Yeah, listen to this I mean, podcast. well, I think there's there's sort and there's sort of like I don't know. It's it's like rubbernecking. Like you're gonna slow down and look at it, but I don't know what kind of scholarly value it has. You can already yeah. access that by going okay. to the Ransom Center if you're a scholar, uh, and just yeah, like reading yeah. like a du- director's cut of Infinite Jest. You know, what if it's not as good? <laughs> yeah, no, but but you also sure. meant these sort of those early unpublished stories, right? So uh, I, I the, mean, the, the, the right. beautifully titled Enema Bandit. Yeah, story. I mean, there's another one. <laughs> the, the Enema that Bandit. Uh, that one. There's one called the yeah. the Piano and the Pantechnicon. Yeah, um, but that that officially yeah. has been published. Has it? Yeah, I, I mean, oh, yeah? the. The earlier stuff beyond uh, Intimate Bandit is pretty juvenile. Yeah. Like, it's pretty... Mm. Uh, he's trying to just get laughs. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right. The Intimate Bandit is, in many ways, quite funny. It's, oh, it's, it's juvenile. Funny, but it's yeah. a Frank Zappa song. Uh-huh. I mean, there's a Frank <laughs> Zappa song, the Intimate Bandit of Peoria, Illinois. Or uh, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, the Ransom Center hasn't really published anything by Wallace. Yeah, uh, I don't mm-hmm. know if they would allow like a big project. I'm sure that, uh, in a way, they don't want to because then if everything was published, it's like why would you? Yeah, go to the yeah. Center? yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. think in terms of really publishing them, I think there's also the dilemma of you know uh, really trying to to squeeze the last little bit yeah. out of you know the, the Wallace corpus by by publishing this. Right. I, I do think you know it's nice to be able to read them I, I find it interesting I found it you know exciting to read it but it's also I, mm-hmm. I, I don't think I don't think it's the stuff that that you know uh, people will go to Wallace for no. or are missing out on enormously by it not being publicly available no but that that squeezing right. the last little drop is true of like every major writer yeah I think that that's not unique to Wallace I think that's true of like Faulkner and Hemingway and you know Virginia Woolf like if they found a letter or a previously unpublished story hell yeah they would publish it somewhere would publish it so that yes I I think a lot of writers juvenilia gets published I think maybe some of it more of it will be published at some point yeah I mean Mm -hmm. there's some other little minor stories like other math I don't know if that was ever published anywhere else don't, don't recall. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, hmm. we could go on. Cool. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we we always could go on for for more and more hours easily. But Allard, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's lovely to have you like in the studio, uh, which is a, a rare treat, especially for yeah, me. Yeah, well, uh, uh, <laughs> thanks for having me. In real life. And uh, if people want to read more of your work, where else can they find it besides this book? 
Yeah, exactly. Well, they can hear a lot about it uh, on the podcast now. Yeah, maybe by popular demand, we should do a part two so we can pick up on all the the things we didn't get to, to discuss. You don't really do Twitter or social media or anything. No, I'm really bad with that. Okay. Yeah, maybe it's also. Do you have an academia? No, not even that. I, I do have. I do Not have even a that, website, well. which I intend to update pretty soon. Do you soon. have a phone? No. I do have, I do <laughs> no, have a phone. No, but I, what, I, what, I, what I do intend to do is, 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 is update my website, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the nearby future also to make, um, you know, what are officially called author versions of my uh, uh, published articles available so that people can just get them instead of having to go through some sort of Springer Dead paywall base, yeah. or, or, or whatever. Yeah. It's allardindult.nl. Um, yeah. Dot .nl, yeah. Right. And we'll we'll definitely link awesome. to that from our website, and um, yes, we'll put you in the show notes. Uh, you're also published in Gesturing Toward Reality, David Foster Wallace and Philosophy, with your good faith and sincerity article, uh, as well as the Paris Conference um, publication yes. from from yeah. three years ago. Um, any other places? That um, there's the that, that are easily yeah, accessible. Yeah, there's the there's the uh, 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 Boswell collection. Oh, the oh yeah, 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 long thing. Long thing. The long thing. Um, oh yeah, that features my boredom uh, right. essay. Most yeah. of those essays are actually the same ones as appeared in the studies studies in the novel uh, special issues. Okay. Mm-hmm. But in my case, I published the the article on uh, irony in studies in the novel and an article on boredom, boredom in the, in the uh, uh, long thing uh, uh, collection. So that's worthwhile for people to know. Um, yeah, there's the presence of the other. Um, uh, so this is all really good uh, Dave if people want to find us where can they find our work uh, we are on Twitter at Concavity Show same with Instagram and if you want to get in touch by email we are Concavity Show at gmail.com That's a wrap. Sounds good. I think that was longer than an hour. Yeah. (laughs) I think you're right. (laughs) It's not too bad. It's not our longest. It's always it's always how it goes.